Well, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you're glad you're here. We're in a series in Jude, and it's pretty hard-hitting. I'm getting a lot of feedback on this series, and got a couple people not so happy with me, but that's, uh, that's okay. I think we're opening eyes, and we're looking at uh, some of the things that are happening in the church around the country. And we're going to do that a little bit more today as well. So I want to introduce you to Pastor Steve Furtick, who is one of the rising stars of the bold and brash emergent church movement. Now listen, I want you to remember that. The emergent church movement, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in a moment, but I want you to watch this video. Hey haters, I hate to break this to you, but your day is done. See, we're done with the way you sling shame and blame in the face of anyone who doesn't say what you say and see what you see, read what you read, think what you think and do what you do, how you do what you do. But it's not about you. We're sick and tired of your pervasive propensity to pick a fight and hide the light, nitpicking every single pixel of God's brilliant picture, seeing only your side in only black and white. So scared to death of difference, shaking your fist in the face of change. I hear you hating on some people because they're not deep enough, but it makes me wonder if depth is more a measure of love than it is about whether people sync up with every idiosyncratic opinion you've got. You're full of opinions, but you're low on the spirit because the spirit is love. The spirit is peace. The spirit is kindness. And the only kind of words you ever seem to speak bring death to the hearer and leave weakness in their way. You look like a toddler drawing lines in the sand, talking about how you're defending the truth and taking a stand. But for all your hating and pontificating and stances and games, there's no change. Fall back. It's a new day. Because we're not looking for approval from you who give no respect and never neglect the chance to complain. Are you going to criticize or create? Waste your time casting stones, breaking bones, belittling everyone you consider opposed? Are you going to exchange your hate, trade the pain of the same, embrace a new way to change the world? Honor's time has come and a new light has dawned to still the tongue of the cynic and pierce the heart of the skeptic. This generation is waiting to restore the hope of a nation. Tell you, he's got a huge church, Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina. And he's probably becoming the rock star poster boy, board boy for the uh, emergent church movement. And that movement, listen, I want to tell you a little bit about it. They don't really like creeds. They don't like a lot of doctrine. They're not really big on theology. Some of them are, but a lot of them aren't. Most of them aren't. There's a few streams within the emergent church movement. One of the streams that I think Pastor Steve would be in, they're doing a lot of good and probably a lot of things that he preaches and teaches and believes are similar to what I believe and what I preach and what I teach and what we're trying to do as a church. But there's another stream and it's led by... Some guys named Brian McLaren and Doug Paget and Rob Bell and Tony Jones and a lot of other guys. I think they're slipping and probably to be more honest, I think they've slipped into heresy. They're hostile to the faith. See, their goal is cultural relevance, the emergent church movement. How to speak and love this generation while always being open to, now listen, rethinking the Christian faith. Because you just never can quite get it right. And it's so obvious 
that they want to redo Christianity. They want to deconstruct it, meaning they want to push through what is current Christianity. And they want to rethink the doctrines and rethink the theologies. And if you read their books and if you go to the, book, the Christian bookshelves, it's all about reimagining and re-imaging and reinterpreting. They're saying that we can't be certain. Now listen, they're saying they can't be certain of your beliefs, except they pretty much feel certain about theirs. They say, we can't be certain, yet they're really certain. And they'll defend them. They always talk of being like Jesus, loving people, changing this world. But they are attacking the faith in many, many ways. For such men, Paul said, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You see, the emergent church movement, and listen, there's a lot that I like about it. But they're cutting edge. They, they, they like to be cutting edge. They're new. They're exciting. They believe that most of us have gotten Christianity wrong. Now friends, listen, it's exciting, isn't it? When a, when a teacher or a preacher or a writer or a friend brings to you a new awareness of, tr- of a truth that's always been there, but you've never quite seen it like that before. It's not a new truth, and it's not that you're reinterpreting it. It's that the Spirit of God is bringing it alive in your mind and bringing it to life in your heart. And that's exciting. But usually, now listen, when you come to sermons, and you come if you come weekly to hear me preach, mostly what you hear is not brand new things that you've not ever heard before. It's what you've heard before, but now it's taking root, hopefully, Lord willing, and it's becoming significant in your life, and it's producing increasingly transformation. See, that new truth is rare. That new understanding of truth may not be as common as the reminder of truth that you get day after day, week after week when you're in the Word of God. Now, I want you to look at Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter. I want you to look at verse 5. All right, so Jude, I want you to look with me. Now, you got to look. Verse 5. Now, look at me. And then look at your Bibles. All right, two steps. I want you to get down in there. you got to hold me accountable. you got to be like the Bereans. Look what he says. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. You see what he's doing? He's reminding them of something that they've already known. He's not bringing new truth. He's bringing something they've already known. He's reminding them of it. Now, I want you to to think for a second. If you want to look up here, let me drive something home as we get ready to get into this passage pretty deep. What did you come today expecting? What did you come to church expecting? And I really want you to think about that. Now, I want you to answer that in your mind. What did you expect when you came today to church? Did you expect that God's going to speak to you through His Word? I mean, the Word of God is living and active, right? It doesn't return void, meaning that when God sends out His Word, it will do its job before it returns. The Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate down deep to separate the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So listen, right now, as I'm preaching, and we're bringing the Word of God to you, God's about to do something in your life. Do you believe that? Are you anticipating that? See, my contention is that a lot of us aren't. A lot of us really aren't expecting God to do something for you in the next 35 to 40 minutes. But I believe He is. And I think mostly what he's going to do, he's going to remind you, maybe it's going to be new, new truth that you've not known before, but I think he's going to remind you what Jude is going to remind us. 
And what he's about to remind his readers and what he's reminding us is this. Now, you ready? you got to brace yourself. God said to Job, brace yourself like a man. Listen, this is hard truth. He's going to remind us of the terrible, terrible future that is in store for those who attack God's faith. Did you hear that? You see, what I think God might be doing today in your heart is I think week by week in these sermons, in this series, He's going to be increasing your boldness. He's going to be increasing your dependency on the Word of God. He's going to be increasing your love for God's Word and your willingness to go speak to people who are getting the Gospel wrong or who don't know the Gospel. I think He's going to increase these things in our hearts. He's going to bring more awareness of what's out there that is frightening and alarming. And guess what? He's going to do with you, I think, what He's doing with me already. He's going to start getting you really angry when you hear people attack the faith. See, Jude's going to remind us of the terrible future in store for those who attack the faith. Here's what he's saying. You've you've got some people in your midst. I hope they're not in this church. I worry. We've got a lot of people coming to this church with all the services that we've got. I'm I'm hoping we don't have false teachers in this church. I I hope we do not have people who are going to be attacking the faith. But listen, Jude's saying, you've got some people in your midst who are heading towards certain judgment. You want proof? Well, let me give you proof. Let me give you three examples from the Old Testament, and they're going to sweep these false teachers up in the New Testament. And we're going to look today at the first two of these three examples. Here's the first one. It's in verse 5. False teachers do not trust God. Now, I've been, I've been asked during this series already, how do you know what a false teacher looks like? Well, hang in there because we're going to be looking at that extensively as we go through this series. But immediately, here would be my answer. False teachers don't really have a faith. They don't really believe God. They don't really trust God. And here's Jude's example, verse 5. Let's read it. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now listen, people don't like to read that. Not Jesus. Not our beloved Savior. The emergent church movement, they don't like to speak this stuff. They don't like anything that's going to be speaking of a holy, wrathful God. But Jude says, Jesus who saved the people. Now you might have a translation that says, Lord. Now the Lord that saved the people. You might have that translation. The ESV and many others have Jesus. Why do they have Jesus? Well, it's because there's a lot of manuscripts that they, that they got a hold of and they interpreted the, the Word of God. And the earliest manuscripts, the earliest ones, the oldest ones have Jesus. And so the ESV translated it with Jesus, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now listen, Jesus is all through the Old Testament. He's all through the Old Testament, what's called the pre-incarnate. Carne means flesh. Before God came in flesh and the person of Jesus, before Jesus took on skin, he was all through the Old Testament. Paul said, in all Israel drank the same spiritual drink, water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Jesus is leading the Jews free from Egypt. Okay, so let's get our, let's get our bearings on this because this is massive. You know how many Jews were coming out of Egypt? Over 600,000 men. Now you factor in their wives and their children. Let's just be very, very conservative and let's round it off at 2 million. I think 2 million is a pretty good number. I think it's actually more, but we're going to be conservative. Let's let's just picture that congregation of 2 million. Can you imagine being in a church of 2 million? Moses is leading this church of 2 million, but Jesus is the one guiding them. He's leading them out. And they're being led by this cloud during the day and this pillar of fire at night. So we've got Jesus leading them out of Egypt. And these people, two million of them, they're witnessing 
God. They're witnessing the miraculous. I mean, listen, wouldn't it be nice if you just said, Jesus, would you just appear in a cloud all day, and then I'm just going to follow you, and at night, just a pillar of fire, and I'll know exactly where I'm to go in life. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, that's what Jesus did in the Old Testament for the Israelites. And they got to witness God's providence. They had manna, and they had quail, they had bread, they had meat, and they saw His might. I mean, can you imagine being there when the Red Sea divided? And as soon as the last of those two million Jews made it on dry ground, on the other side of that Red Sea, all of a sudden, those waters closed down on the pursuing Egyptian army, drowning that army, I mean, wouldn't that be, I mean, that'd be pretty atrocious, but can't you imagine the power of that miracle? I mean, they get to see God on display, and He brings them all the way to the edge of the promised land. Everybody say Kadesh. All the way to Kadesh. All the way to the edge of the promised land, where they send 12 men... To spy out the land. Now you know the story. Remember, I'm reminding you. I'm not giving you new information. This is just reminding you. Sent 12 men out to spy out the land. They were gone for 40 days. And when they returned, 10 of the 12 reported back, the land's incredible, unbelievable food, flowing with milk and honey, except we've got a problem. We're too weak to take it. They're giants. We're nothing in their eyes. And we all had times when we've said this or thought that or felt that, that, Lord, you know, I know you're asking me to do this, but I cannot do it. I remember one time, a long time ago, I had to get ordained. I didn't have to, but the church asked me to, so I did. I got licensed, and in the Evangelical Free Church, it's not as easy as you might think. You don't just fill out an internet form, send it away, and then you get your ordination um, certificate. You've got to go through a three-year, pretty rigorous process. First stage, define your theology. Second stage, defend it. The second stage, much bigger than the first stage. Marcos is in the back. He was sitting on that ordination council on the day that I had to go in there and get ordained. And I don't know why the Lord did this to me. I think sometimes he likes to do these things. On that particular ordination, they decided, the what's called the Board of Ministerial Standing, decided to bring their Minneapolis representative, the head guy, to sit in on my ordination and the guy down in Virginia to be able to see how it's going to work and the improvements that they got to make. So all of a sudden, instead of the usual eight to ten pastors that normally make up the council, all of a sudden we got 15 to 20 and the top guys in the evangelical free church who are the watchdogs of our doctrine. I was so scared, and I don't mind telling you this, I was so scared Denise would would tell you, she drove in because I'm cramming. I know I'm going to be asked questions that I don't know how to answer, so I'm cramming. I'm like flipping through the Bible, flipping through my notes, and all of a sudden, on the way in there, we're going out to Trexlertown, Pennsylvania, out to Faith E. Free Church. I just start crying. I am so scared. I am so nervous that I am just saying, Lord, I can't do this. I said, Denise, just turn around. I'm not going to do this. He said, you can do this. The Lord's going to help you. Well, I made it through it. But don't you have times where you just feel like, God, you're asking me to do something that's too big. Too big. My faith is wobbling. Well, these ten men, they're in positions of influence. Let's take your Bible so you know what I'm saying is right. Let's open it up to Numbers chapter 13, all the way back in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 13. Look what it says in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one of them, or every one, a chief among them. You look down at the end of verse 3. These, these were men, these spies were men who were the heads of the people of Israel. God said, Send out your leaders. And they're influential people. They're, they're leaders over large groups of people. And they come back and they, ten of them, these, these men of influence, say to the congregation, the two million, we can't take it. We can't take the land. It's, the people are too big. 
But God's saying, listen, just trust me. Look at all the things that I've done to get you to hear. Look at the, my power over the might of Pharaoh. Look at all the things I did at the Red Sea. All the miracles, all the providence, all of what I've done to show you who I am, to get you ready for this. You can do this. Believe me, trust me, and you're going to have the land of promise. But these ten men, all but Caleb and Joshua said, we can't. And they led the people astray. Look at verse 31, chapter 13, Numbers. We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. Then all the congregation, look at verse chapter 14, all the congregation raised a loud cry, and people wept that night. And, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're ready to go back to slavery. I mean, they're right on the edge of the land of promise. And because 10 of those 12 spies said, we cannot do this. This is bigger than we are. It, it was like cancer and toxic all through the congregation. And they all said, let's get rid of these leaders. Let's go back to Egypt. Friends, I want you to hear this. Unbelief is a terrible thing. And it will spread through a church. And as it spreads, listen, it produces apostasy, which means defection, which means an abandonment from a previous loyalty. Apostasy is you're going in this direction, and then you turn around and you go in the opposite direction. And it requires, it requires not radiation, not chemotherapy. It requires radical removal of apostates. I want you to see verse 11 in chapter 14. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people, what? What's it say? Despise me. And how long will they not believe in me? Listen, if you do not believe in God after you've seen all of the miracles of God, then that God says you're despising Him. See, these are the people that are in a church. Now listen, we've got, I'm sure we've got people in our church that they hear these testimonies of what God is doing. And they sit week after week in these sermons and their heart soars in this worship. And they're being challenged to grow. They're being challenged to memorize the Scriptures. But they cannot quite make it over to the Promised Land. They can't quite get to the point where they're ready to say, God, you've got my life. I put my faith and my trust in you. I'm going to hold it back. I can't, I'm not ready to cross into that. That's unbelief. You know what happens Eventually, in almost every case, there will come a time when that person who will not cross over into the promised land of salvation, there comes a time where they will turn their back and they will depart from God. Jude is warning the church, don't let these false teachers influence you. Don't listen to them. Remember the ten spies. Remember how God severely punished them. You know what God did? He took every one of those two million people aged 20 and above. And he said, they will not be allowed into my land of promise. They will die in the wilderness he says, you will wander in the wilderness for one year for every day you were out spying in the land. And that's what happened. For 40 years they wandered. For 40 years, age 20 and above began dropping like flies. One expert tallied it up to 90 people a day. Over 600,000 likely people died in that wilderness because those apostate Ten spies, leaders of the people, influencers came back and said, we cannot do it. Our God is too small. They despise God. See, that's why we're exposing false teachers. That's why we're guarding, that's why we guard the pulpit in this church. This is why we encourage you, know the truth. When you know the truth, you're going to see, you're going to discern what is not true. 
Because these false teachers, they look good, but they are unbelievers at the core. I want you to hear from a guy named Tony Jones up in Minnesota. I want you to hear what he has to say about his faith. For me, it's a daily, daily, I wonder if this whole thing's a total crock. Daily, I think, is there really a God? Is my whole life based on a hoax? Every day I make, I make a decision to go one day, one day more. I mean, really, I really, I'm, I'm agnostic in that sense, in that I, every day, I don't know. This is Tony Jones, he used to be a pastor, he used to be a youth pastor. Now he's a professor, he's a book writer. It's one of the leading voices for the emergent church movement. He's in the stream that I think is fast slipping into heresy. And you might be thinking, well, that's just a sound bite. Doing a lot of research on Tony Jones. That's pretty consistent with what he says. See, they glory in agnosticism, this doubting. They think it's wonderful. You should doubt. This is not good to be certain. You can't be certain of your belief. Certainty is, is modernism. It's the arrogance of the forefathers before us. Man, we're, we're postmodern and everything is suspect. And the way that you deconstruct, the way that you reimagine, the way that you reinterpret the Word of God is you first got to doubt it. You got to deconstruct it. You got to be an agnostic at heart and then you're going to find the truth. That's what they teach. It's unbelief. And that can spread like a cancer. Let me give you the second point that Jude says, and this is pretty interesting. This is the second one. It's in verse 6. False teachers will not submit to God's authority. The first point was false teachers do not trust God. And this one is false teachers will not submit to God's authority. You see, the emergent church movement Remember, I've def- I told you they're deconstructing Christianity. Let me tell you what Rob Bell said. Now, a lot of you probably are familiar with Rob Bell. He wrote this book called Velvet Elvis, followed it up with Love Wins, has another book out now. Here's what he said in Velvet Elvis. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of God. Now listen, you've got to hear this with discernment. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he, now he explains... The words of Jesus. He is giving his followers, he's saying that's us, the authority to make new interpretations of the Bible. He's giving them permission to say, hey, we think we missed it before on that verse. And we've recently come to the conclusion that this is what it actually means. And not only is he giving them authority, but he's saying that when they do debate and when they do discuss and pray and wrestle and then make decisions about the Bible, somehow God in heaven will be involved. Now, are you hearing with discernment what he's writing You know, when I read this book several years ago, throughout the book, I kept feeling, man, something's off. Just my spirit wasn't resting well in his writings, and I didn't quite understand it then until I began really studying a lot more. What what he's saying is this, is that we have the power that whatever we bind or loose here will then be bound and loosed in heaven. But Jesus is speaking to the apostles. And he's speaking about apostolic authority. He's speaking about those who will write the word and close the canon. Close the the rule of measurement. Close the books that are going to be included in the Bible. This is an ongoing promise for us. It doesn't mean that every Christian in every generation can just reinterpret whatever you don't like in the Bible. I mean, this kind of gives the reason for his subtitle of Velvet Elvis, which is repainting the Christian faith. That's the subtitle. That's his true agenda. And well, here's what Paul says. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Listen, heresy often begins with a very low view of authority of God's word in a very high view of our own. Did you hear that? Heresy, I'm going to say almost always, begins with a very low view of the authority of God's word and a very high view of our own authority. And we get to see this in verse 6. Let's look together, Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not stay 
within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. This is example number two. You remember what he's doing? He's giving three examples. We're going to look at two today. The first one were the Israelites who did not believe, did not trust God. They were apostates, the leaders. This one's the angels who did not like their rank. They didn't like their position of authority. They weren't content with it. They strayed outside of it. And you might be thinking immediately, well, he's talking about Lucifer. And when Lucifer fell and all of the angels that that allied themselves with him, he led them in a rebellion against God, one third of them or so. And God defeated them and swept them out of heaven. Well, that's one view. I don't think that's the right view. For what Jude is referring to. Because Satan prowls around. It says that God has locked them up. Well, he's prowling around. He is doing his work. Sowing seeds of rebellion. He's active. He's not in eternal change. Look at verse 6. He's not under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. You see, there's another explanation for this. I think it fits better. But listen, I think I'm going to probably shock you when I tell you what it is. So let me be careful with this. I want you to try to listen very carefully. Genesis chapter 6 says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them, the sons of God. That's a very likely phrase for fallen angels. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they choose. Now, why do I think this is it? Well, the Jews would have been very familiar with Genesis chapter 6 because there were books. There were books written between the Old and the New Testament, the Jewish books And one of them was called the book of Enoch. In fact, look at verse 13 in Jude. Jude's going to reference it. It was a very familiar book filled with legends. It did not make it into the scriptures, but a very interesting book nonetheless. And the book explains Genesis 6 as 100 demons who had sex with women on this earth. And to most of us, that just sounds crazy. Look at the next verse in Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, that word likewise points towards your interpretation of verse 6. Likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural order. The citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, they did the same thing as these angels in verse 6. It was all about sexual immorality. It was a sin that was so severe that God took those fallen angels, those demons, and he locked them up so that they could never do anything so grievous again. And Jude is comparing these apostate teachers with these imprisoned angels, fallen angels, who went outside the authority that God had given them, abandoning what could have been theirs. You see, false teachers don't like authority. They don't like it. How do you respond to this message? I mean, what do you do with these two points from Jude 5 and 6? Point one, that that not believing God after he's made himself so clear is despising him. It's unbelief. Point two, that God has given us authority. And when we don't like the authority that we have, we want more of that authority so that we lower God's authority of his word and we increase our authority. God's not very happy with that. It's what the angels did. What do you do with that? Let me suggest three takeaways. And I hope you maybe write these down or at least try to think deeply through them. Three takeaways. Number one, the reality of their condemnation, both the Israelites and the angels, the reality of their condemnation ought to produce in you, it ought to produce in me, the resolve to keep a close watch, Paul said, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, Timothy's a young pastor. Paul's his mentor. He's saying, Timothy, man, you got to watch your life. 
And you got to watch your doctrine. You got to watch them both. And if you persist in that, if you watch your life and if you watch your doctrine, you're going to save yourself, you're going to save your hearers. You're going to lead them to the gospel of salvation. Don't get to Kadesh and turn away in unbelief. Don't don't get discontent at the authority that God has given to you. Persist in the faith to the end of your life. But be careful, he says. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You've got to be humble. You've got to stay confident in God's word. Now listen, look at me for just a moment. Let me ask you some questions. Remember, you put your mind in gear. You've got to do something with what the preacher's saying. If you just put your mind in neutral, you're not going to do anything in your life. Are you watching your life? Are you watching over your life? Or is there something in your life right now that God's been dealing with you've not yet been submitting to Him? Maybe it's a guy or a girl that you're dating. You know you shouldn't be. Maybe it's a a substance that you started taking that you know you shouldn't be. Maybe it's bitterness and anger that is lodging. It's getting hold that's going to spread. Hebrew said it'll spread like a root of bitterness. It's going to defile many. God's saying you got to get rid of it. How do you kill bitterness? You forgive. Or maybe, maybe God's asked you to do something that you've said, no way, God, I'm not doing that. Is there something in your life that you're not watching with the eyes of the gospel? Listen, this is how it begins. A lot of the, a lot of the teachers that I'm studying, a lot of the false teachers that I'm studying, listen, they used to be solid. They used to be doing the right things and then they weren't watching their doctrine. They weren't watching their life and sin begins to creep and it begins to sleep and it begins to settle in their hearts and into their minds. And all of a sudden the things that they used to believe so powerfully, they don't believe it anymore. It's a new dawn, new era, a new theology. And it's not the old theology. Do you even know your doctrine? You know, Pastor Steve Furtick? Listen, part of why he said, you know, his haters, you know, are, are mad because he doesn't go deep. It's because he, his, most of his church, he's a young guy. His church is about 6,000 people. I think it's only been in existence about five or six years. I might be wrong in that. But it's a young church. He's a young guy. He's got to get a little humility. But listen... He preaches to non-believers almost exclusively. That's what his church is made up of. And he wants it that way. So his excuse is, you don't preach the depth of the Bible. I'm preaching to non-believers. My, my, my view is, what's going to draw them to Christ if it's not the depth of the glory and the grace of Jesus? Why wouldn't you preach deep and make it relevant? Are you watching over your doctrine? Listen, do you even know what you believe, friends? Honestly, this is so frustrating to most pastors because our people aren't digging deep. Do you study the Word of God? Listen, I'm not asking if you read your verses every day. Do you study the Word of God? Do you know it? And can you explain it to people? You know, they did a conference years ago on uh, to pastors. About 3,000 pastors. They asked a question that the, that the pastors wrote down and handed in. What is the gospel? How do you define the gospel? Pastors wrote it down. They handed it in. They looked through those 3,000 submissions. And they tallied up maybe five, no, I think three, that actually got the gospel even close to what the Word of God says. Three. Listen, we're in this church. We bought this building because the previous church that we were feeding the homeless and the underemployed in, the pastor of that church couldn't even couldn't even answer what the gospel was. She came to Pastor Tim Van Summer and says, Pastor Tim, I just heard you preach and about the gospel. What is it? I don't even know what it is. She's the pastor of that church. 
Do you know what you believe? And can I ask a better question? Do you know what God believes? Because there's a lot of times there's a difference between what I believe and what God believes. And when there's a difference, it's not God who's off. It's me. The reality of their condemnation ought to produce in us that resolve. Watch our lives and watch our teaching. The second one is the degree, the degree of the condemnation. This is scary. The degree of their condemnation ought to produce in us the boldness to get in that ring, to contend for the faith. Look what Jude's saying. Destroyed those who did not believe. He's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Peter says, the Lord will keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and and despise authority. Listen, when you have family and you have friends believing false teachers, you've got to get to them lovingly and you've got to contend for the faith. You've got to show them the truth. Let me get to the third one because you guys aren't listening fast enough. I gotta hurry. The third one is this. The eternal nature of their condemnation ought to produce in us the urgency to prayerfully correct those who deceive others. Listen, now I'm speaking about these false teachers. We ought to be praying for them. We ought to be correcting them. I want to spend a little time on this. This is so huge. Because the church in our theology is under attack. Listen, you know these videos that I've been sharing with you the last three weeks? That's outside our normative experience. We're not getting drunk on the Holy Spirit. We're not huffing Jesus, okay? That's like out in crazy land, but it's still getting mainstream. It's dangerous, but that's not us. And I don't preach to you that by the, that your little gods, like we looked last week, and that you have the power to create word faith, that you can dip into these buckets of faith, the substance that God himself created with, and speak, Joel Osteen, speak your blessings into that day. And Joel will tell you, don't look in the mirror and speak bad about yourself because you will create a bad day. Listen, we don't preach that. We don't teach that. Frankly, it's not even in the Bible. We don't do that. But what we do teach hauntingly sounds familiar to the church The emergent church, except they're twisting it. And their pioneer, his name is Brian McLaren. And he wrote this, We should consider the possibility that many, and perhaps even all, of Jesus' hellfire or end-of-the-universe statements refer not to post-mortem judgment, but to the very historic consequences of rejecting his kingdom message of reconciliation and peacemaking. The destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 67 through 60 seems to many people to fulfill much of what we have traditionally understood as hell. Do you hear what he's saying? He said there's no place called hell. And there's no place called heaven. They exist now. And the closest that people are going to get to hell is suffering in this life. He argues it's not a place you go after death. It's the reality of suffering now. It doesn't matter that Jesus spoke more of hell and heaven than all of the biblical authors combined. I mean, can you get that? Listen, if you want to know who spoke on hell the most, it was Jesus. More than any, more than all of the biblical writers combined. But Pastor Doug Paget, honestly, he's kind of the scariest of all of them. Listen to him try to answer and how evasive he is when Todd Friel, on this radio program, asks him a a simple question that any of us could answer. Listen to this. Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these 
affect you? I'm a good Muslim. What happens to my soul when I die? You are you interact with God just as every other human being interacts with God. You mean Hebrews nine? It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. Yeah, right. That's so he gets judged. Right. That's interaction with God. Uh huh. And so what's yeah. what's going to happen to the? How is God going to judge the good Muslim? Does it, God's going to judge the life and repair and restore and heal the life of everybody in the same way. So the Muslim is ultimately not going to be, go to a bad place. He's ultimately going to be restored with God when he dies? No, there's going to be no difference between the way God's going to interact with you when you die and the way God's going to interact with a Muslim when a Muslim dies. So I want to, I want to put this into my fundamentalist language. What I just heard you say is there is no difference between the Christian and the Muslim afterlife. God is going to have a good place prepared for both of us. Now, if you're picking that up, what Doug Padgett, the first one was Rob Bell and then Doug Padgett, what Doug Padgett's saying is that there is no difference between you, Christian, and a, and a good Muslim. That God's going to work with that Muslim. He's going to judge that Muslim. He's going to reconcile that Muslim to himself. And that's what the, the emergent church movement is starting to teach, is that there is no heaven and hell. That's this existence that everybody, it might take a long time. Rob Bell says in Love Waits' his book, I'm reading it while I'm deer hunting. It's the only time I can stomach the book. It says, listen, <laughs> I am... He says, listen, God's, God's going to win. Love's going to win. It might take some people a little longer, but sooner or later, they're all going to be in maybe not this place called heaven, but they're going to be with God. You know what Rob Bell does? He is a master at this. I didn't tally him up, but that book, Love Wins, I bet he asked over 500 questions. That's a tactic. Do you know who first, you know who asked the very first question in all of the Bible? It wasn't God. It was Satan. Genesis 3. Did God actually say, he says to Eve, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The second question is asked by God. God asked, Adam, where are you? Not because God didn't know. He's omniscient. He's got all knowledge. He asked Adam, where are you? So that he could bring Adam and Eve to the awareness that they're hiding from God. They're hiding from one another. This is the terrible travesty of sin. It breaks peace. And it introduces fear. You see, Satan will ask questions. He's got a motive. You know what his motive is? It's always to interject doubt. Satan asks questions to interject doubt, to get you to wonder, to get you to be uncertain, to arouse suspicion. But God always asks questions to get you to see your heart and your situation and cry out for mercy. How interesting... That the serpent, after introducing suspicion into Eve's mind, then audaciously said, you will not surely die, or let me put it in my words, it's not so sure as you're made to believe. Don't be so certain, Eve. And this is one of the core tenets of emergent theology. Certainty is wrong. You can't be certain, Eve. Your future, it's not been written. You're going to write it. You're participating with God writing your future. Listen to this from Brian McLaren. The future is open. And that's really what I, I believe uh, we need to consider now. Not that all of history is a done deal. It's already determined but that we're actually participating with God in the writing of the song. I want you to remember this phrase. We deal with this in our licensing and ordination councils. Do you, I want you to hear this phrase called openness theology. It's come in and out of the church. It appears every once in a while it's starting to make its way into the emergent church movement. You just heard Brian McLaren talking about it. Is that God doesn't even know the future. Do you hear that? God doesn't even know the future. 
because your future has not yet been written. So you write that future as you walk with God and you've got a lot of power over your future through your decisions. It's not God knows the future. He's just incredibly good at responding to the future and still bringing out his will. That's openness theology. That's a heresy. It's a blatant attack on God's sovereignty, his lordship. It's an absolute disagreement with what Jude wrote in verse 2. To those who are called, summoned, not given an invitation. Remember, we, we hit that. Summoned, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Christian, listen, remember, you've been summoned to your salvation. You've been, you've been put into the very same love that God has for his son, Jesus. And the Father will keep you. He will protect you. And he will give you. He will present you. To Jesus, his son. But angels who did not keep their position, God has kept in chains of darkness. Listen, that's apostasy. Whether it's that of Israel at the at Kadesh, right at the edge of the promised land, or whether it's fallen angels who come down and they reproduce, cohabitate with women. Either or, they are apostates, they are rebellious, they are false, and they are destined, designated for condemnation. Listen, this is what Jude says of these false teachers. This is terrifying. Listen, it is crucial that we watch over our lives, that we watch over our doctrines, that we know what we believe, that we know the truth, so that we can discern what is wrong. And that we are okay with saying, this is our authority, this is over me, and I am under it. Do you know partly why the reformers back in the 1500s led such a massive rebellion against the Catholic Church was this. The Pope had come over the Word of God. And his interpretation, his papal authority, trumped God's. And the Reformers, along with other issues, the Reformers said, no, that's not how it ought to be. The Pope ought to be under authority. All of us ought to be under the authority of the Word of God. And they brought about a new way, a new way of understanding. It really wasn't very new. It was the biblical way. They just recovered it and reminded. And now all of a sudden what we're seeing is the emergent church movement who was here now sliding here. And they're saying it's time to reinterpret this. It's time to dust it off and get it ready for a new generation. And some of the things that you might have thought were true, like hell and heaven and, and homosexuality being a sin. Listen, that's not a sin. That's a matter of your wrong interpretation. We've got the right interpretation. We hold the keys and we're giving it to you. Come join us. And they are heretics. Know the truth. Learn to discern. Get in the Word of God. And let the Word of God get in you. Amen.